Hello and welcome to The Lead, the New Lines magazine podcast. I'm Lydia Wilson and this is a podcast where we delve into the biggest ideas, events and personalities in the Middle East and beyond. In The Lead this week, we take a look at Tunisia's new constitution and what it means for the future of the country. Despite the low turnout and opposition boycotts, the constitution was narrowly approved by a referendum held last month on the 25th of July. This was the culmination of a turbulent year of political change. In July 2021, President Kais Saied removed the Prime Minister and dissolved Parliament, a move widely condemned as a coup. Yet opinions within the country were divided. Demonstrations expressed a level of popular support for the power grab and and an abiding dissatisfaction with the status quo. Many hoped that a strongman like Syed could be the solution to Tunisia's worsening economic crisis. But the intervening months showed no improvement and more moves towards total control. By September 2021, protests had turned against Syed and his plan to scrap the 2014 post-revolution constitution. That constitution was Tunisia's great achievement. It had been won in the streets by Tunisia's citizens during the Arab Spring. Tunisia was where it all started in December 2010, when Mohamed Bouazizi, a market trader, set himself on fire in protest at his arbitrary treatment by corrupt officials. His despair resonated across the Arab world, sparking protests all over the region. But the uprisings played out very differently in different countries. Syria's Assad plunged the country into a horrific and violent civil war rather than step aside. Egypt's Mubarak was successfully overthrown, but a military coup restored the status quo within two years. Tunisia alone seemed to be treading a path towards democracy. Still, the 2014 constitution was far from perfect. The first post-revolution elections gave a majority to the Islamist party Ennahda, but its leader, Rashid Ghanoushi, proceeded with caution and agreed to share power with centre-left and secular parties. The constitution was a product of this, at times, uneasy alliance. It was written in vague, even contradictory language in order to unite the country and allow for future debate and development. As is always the case with such compromised documents, many were left dissatisfied, though not all for the same reasons. Some felt aggrieved by the lack of Sharia in the constitution. Others felt it did not adequately protect certain rights. Nevertheless, it did the job it was meant to do, maintaining stability in the crucial first days of Tunisia's new democracy. It did so through instances of high-profile terrorist violence, dire economic performance and even a global pandemic. Until last year, that is, when Syed made his move to dissolve parliament. The new constitution concentrates formidable powers in the position of president, moving away from the carefully crafted inclusivity of the 2014 version. Tunisia is far from unique in its democratic backsliding. The past 10 years have seen a global shift away from democracy as countries like Hungary, India and even the United States have slid towards authoritarianism. But Tunisia's status as the cradle of the Arab Spring, as well as its foremost success story, make it an especially bitter example of the trend. Whatever happens next for Tunisia will have repercussions not just for Tunisians, but for the fate of democracy across the entire region and beyond. I'm joined today by Mohamed Zia Hamami, a Tunisia analyst and PhD student at Syracuse University who has kept a close eye on recent events. Zia, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. My first question is, 
just how long ago did you begin to see this or something like this coming? Because this political crisis has been brewing for a while, hasn't it? Yes, um, it does. However, I don't think it could have been predicted in the long run. Uh, I started noticing calls for a change of the political system uh, since the last few months before the coup. I would say probably starting from February 2021, while the coup happened on July 2021. Right. And so he's already been ruling by decree for about a year. What is it about this new constitution that marks it as a sort of crucial turning point? What new powers does it give Syed? Qais Saeed has unchecked power. He has control over the judiciary system. He cannot be removed or impeached in any way. He has total immunity for his action. And this is unprecedented. Even under Ben Ali, we used to have at least on paper some form of balance and check. The judiciary was never fully under the control of the president. In fact, there are some instances of resistance of the judiciary that we noticed under Ben Ali. In addition to that, Saeed draws his strength from uh, his popularity. And as long as it remains at the current level, he may stay in power for at least 10 years, but the constitution allows him also to extend his mandate beyond 2032. So this really is as serious as people are commenting. I mean, that sounds like on paper, he's more of a dictator than, than, than anyone. Exactly. Uh, there are some people who even compared his power with the North Korean leaders, how on paper in the North Korean constitution, the parliament has the possibility to remove the, the president. And in Tunisia, he, no one does that. Um, so we know that obviously in North Korea, it's not possible because of the power dynamics. Um, but we don't even have that in, in the new Tunisian constitution. Well, with it having passed, has Tunisia's democracy now passed the point of no return? Is there a way back? Well, I, I don't think it passed a point of no return because Said is having serious problem consolidating his power. Uh, we're seeing resistance from the judiciary. They went on this, on an unprecedented general strike for a month. Um, the uh, police unions are now organizing against him, which means that he has problems controlling the internal security forces. And specialists of the civil-military relations in Tunisia noticed that there is also a lack of loyalty among uh, military officers. Only a small minority of Tunisian top officers seem to be loyal to Said, And uh, we did not see them in public with him uh, for a while. So do you think this is in the balance, that there might be a plausible path back? A path back is very unlikely. Um, I think that a return to the 2014 constitution or a re-establishment of the parliament elected in 2019 is almost impossible. 
However, the current balance of power does not allow Saeed to establish a full dictatorship in the way Ben Ali did, for example. But it would also lead to a protracted instability. So there's everything really to play for in the future. Now, there are two people in particular who are right at the heart of all of this. We'll get to Syed in a minute, but for the moment, I'd just like to ask you about an Ahda leader, Rashid Khanoushi. He founded the movement which became the Anahda Party all the way back in 1981. So he's been one of the country's most influential Islamist figures for decades now. But he's not your typical Islamist, is he? Exactly. He actually even started the Islamist movement earlier in uh, the early 70s. So he's been the leader of the Islamist tendency in Tunisia for 50 years. Even when he was in exile, he still had a strong influence and the leadership position over the Islamists. And he's not the typical one. He also tend to present himself now as a Muslim Democrat, which is a new brand adopted in 2016. But his references and his mode of action are quite different from the traditional Islamist organizations in the Middle East, in the sense that he is not really in favor of revolutionary action or armored struggle. And he draws from a wide variety of intellectual traditions from within the Islamist tradition, but also from outside. Well, yes, I'd like to pick up on that because, as you mentioned, he was more than 20 years living in exile in the UK. And he once said that Britain embodied the values of his ideal Islamic state more than most Muslim-majority nations. Now, that was shocking to, to many Islamists because so many of those contemporary projects were founded in direct opposition to Western hegemony and culture. How much do you think he really believed that? I think this is an excellent question. Um, I noticed once in 2016 that he mentioned that today, or at least at that time, Tunisia was an Islamic state, and the journalist was shocked and didn't follow up. So I got to meet him and I asked him this very specific question. And his answer was very interesting. So his understanding of statehood is closer to some Rousseauian understanding of the social contract, meaning that he believed that the state of nature is Islam and all the state has to do is to guarantee freedom of religion in the way the Anglo-Saxon systems do, like in the UK or in the US. And the role of the Islamist political party would be to inhibit the repressive power of the state over religion. And I think he came up with this understanding of the role of the Islamist state after the repression of religious activities in Tunisia during Ben Ali regime and his exposure to the British tradition. Tunisian secularists are strongly influenced by the French laicite tradition, which tend to be oppressive of certain religious practices like veil, for example. Well, yeah, I mean, this is all fascinating, but I still wonder how much is a reflection of his actual beliefs. Does he does he genuinely disagree with with the more mainstream Islamists we see across the region, including in Tunisia? Or is he just better at PR? I, I think he uh, does, but doesn't mean that the grassroots members of Anahava subscribe to his complex views of Islam and statehood. 
And that's the major problem. Yeah, well, one thing I think is very clear about Renucci is that he's a very canny political operator. He's he's survived decades as, as, as the most influential politician in Tunisia. So he supported Syed's presidency. Can you understand why he did that? Yes, he did. And many political actors did because... Uh, and myself, even as an observer, I'm not a politician. Um, I did not expect, I, I misread Said. Uh, we did not have enough information about him. In his rhetoric, he tend to present himself as a Democrat. He did say in public that he gives importance to the rule of law. He does not have a military background. He didn't seem to have ties with uh, the police or the military. So no one expected such a scenario. Mm. And uh, the other reason why uh, most people um, voted for Saeed in Tunisia, especially in the second round of the elections, is because his opponents, especially in the second round, were not that great. Uh, they were more problematic than him at that time. Uh, they were under investigation for serious corruption and financial crimes. So for most Tunisians, it was an easy choice to uh, vote for Saeed instead of Nabil Qarwi. I just wanted to talk a little bit about Tunisia because many books on the Arab Spring painted the country as, a, as an exceptional case in the Arab world by pointing to elements in the society such as high participation of women in the workforce, the strong labour unions that have achieved so much in the country, the liberalism of society seen in markers like clothing, lack of hijab and so on. Now, these things are real, but how much importance do you attach to, the, to these liberal elements in the country how how different do you think Tunisia really is from its neighbors I think most of the research that has been done on the on the success or the relative success of Tunisian experience uh, was somehow theological basically they were saying okay Tunisia succeeded let's see what Tunisia has different what has special and that's why I think we tend to fall into these explanations. In fact, Tunisian society is not as liberal as it seemed to be. And even the seculars are not necessarily liberal in the political sense. Many seculars or the large majority of seculars drove from authoritarian intellectual references. There are a variety of political parties with Leninist tendencies, others with Arab nationalist tendencies, whether that's the Ba'ath or the Nasserist. So even the seculars are not liberal in the Western sense. And I think the literature did miss this part of the... Um, of the story. Story, exactly. Well, these... These labels are very misleading when you transfer them to different contexts, I feel. And I think there's a definite tendency to think of liberalism and authoritarianism as being opposites. But that's not always the case. And there's a very good case in point in, in the regime of Habib Bourguiba, Tunisia's first president. He achieved his admittedly liberal vision through violence and coercion. He silenced anyone who challenged him both inside and outside of his own party for 30 years. But how much of modern Tunisia would you think is down to Bourguiba's Tunisia? Um, just to regarding Bourguiba, uh, Bourguiba was more a, a nationalist than a liberal. There was a liberal faction in his party that ended up opposing him, but he was more a nationalist and a secularist, not really a liberal. And I think we're still seeing the legacy of Bourguiba today. In fact, the most popular political party right now 
pretend to be a continuation of Bourguiba's legacy. But again, in the explanations we saw deployed during the last 10 years, the emphasis was more on the positive side, let's say, of, of Bourguiba's legacy than the negative ones. Right, because my abiding image of Bourguiba is he set out to remove the hijab and there are pictures of him literally ripping it off somebody's head as if that was giving them more freedom with an act of sheer violence. And so I think that's where I'm coming from um, in that in that kind of collision between claims of a liberal vision and actual violence to enforce it. Um, and of course, there are lots of examples of that with um, imprisoning and, and, and torturing dissidents. Um, but Bulgiba died in 1987, and the more overtly dictatorial, he, there were no promises <laughs> that, 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 that this was a democracy, Zine al-Abdin ben Ali took over, and he remained in power until the Arab Spring protests forced him out over 20 years later. How much continuity was there between the Bourguiba regime and the Ben Ali regime? So um, Bourguiba was removed from power um, in 1987 through a coup. It was presented as a medical coup or a constitutional coup, but it was still a coup. Um, and during the first years of Ben Ali regime, um, there were a lot of positive signals sent by the new rulers, like, for example, the abolition of the state security court that was prosecuting politicians for treason and phony accusations like that. He pledged to organize elections. He started with initially municipal election, but he rigged it. And that's when things started turning bad and the old authoritarian tradition of Bourguiba's legacy started appearing. Uh, through the use of military courts to prosecute opposition leaders. Bourguiba did that more than once. Ben Ali did it. Um, and now we're seeing Said using it again. So that's interesting. Is that is that what we're seeing? Is, is he best understood as another Bourguiba, another Ben Ali? Or is he a new kind of autocrat for a new period in Tunisia's history? I think he is a new type of autocrat because he does not have the same level of acceptance among elites as Bourguiba and Ben Ali did. So if he wants to consolidate his power, he needs to come up with new tools and new tactics than Ben Ali and Bourguiba did. Well, I'd just like to explore actually at what, how, how popular he actually is, because many, including Hanoushi and the Anahda party, called for a boycott of the referendum. And so, of course, the result is not representative of the country as a whole, but it did pass and is now law. Can we judge just how representative it is? Well, the call for boycott came from across the political spectrum. It started, like you say, from the Islamist party of Anahda and Ghanoushi, and there was only actually one serious political party who called for a no vote. So there is a broad rejection uh, of his constitution from the established uh, elites. And also non-political, I'm working on business elites and I try to list the uh, business people who are supportive of, of the constitution. And it was really difficult to find <laughs> a handful of names. So, so in terms of popularity, 
most of his supporters and the 2.6 out of 9 million voters who supported the constitution belonged either to the uh, to the masses or to elites who did not manage to uh, gain power to obtain seats in the parliament during the last 10 years. Uh, so we can call them somehow marginal powerless elites, people who have some level of education, but uh, were marginalized to different forms, either exclusion from political, political processes or economic inclusion. And so the centers of powers of the Tunisian system right now are not supportive of Saeed. And the large majority of the population is not supportive either. They are either passive, like the 50% who did not show up to the polls, but simply because they were not interested, or the 24% or 25% who did not show up to the polls because they were actively boycotting um, the uh, constitutional referendum. And, of course, there were those who did vote, who voted against. Well, actually, 94 or 95% of those who showed up to the polls voted in favor. Ah, okay, okay. Yes, so it was it was really a sham referendum with a 90-something percent of uh, yes votes. So that does explain what so many people are asking about this referendum, that it looks on the world stage that Tunisians have welcomed an end to a democracy they fought really hard for. But what you're explaining is that they didn't. Absolutely, they didn't. Those who supported the coup initially did not expect him to change the constitution. That was never a serious demand or even a popular one. And uh, he only announced it in uh, December that he was intending to change the constitution. And some people thought, well, maybe this is an occasion to improve what we have and make it more democratic. So although major political parties boycotted the entire process, we saw many academics, for example, or business people joining the process of drafting. So most people, even those who still support Saeed right now, do not think that he will become a dictator or he will really concentrate power in the way he's actually doing or in the way Ben Ali and Bourguiba did. Uh, and that's why we, 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 we saw such a strong support throughout the entire last year. Uh, the new constitution, the draft, was really a surprise uh, for so many people. So, yes, I wouldn't say that uh, Tunisians were supportive of um, the dictatorial aims of Said. Well, you are painting a picture of a very different type of autocrat, a real break from many different past leaders in, in Tunisia. But I think it's quite striking how much uh, K. Said looks like a lot of other populist leaders we're seeing around the world. And I don't just mean in his politics, but actually in his presentation. He was a political outsider, as I mentioned, but still he was very well connected. He's socially conservative, but not particularly ideological. And he's remained extremely vague about his political views, as you say, even misleading, in a way which allows him to move very freely between camps as and when he needs to. So, I mean, he presents himself as a man of the people. He is very concerned about law and order, especially about corruption. And he's said both moral and financial. And he talks about the need for popular 
accountability uh, while at the same time eroding the dem democratic norms in Tunisia. Doesn't a lot of that also sound like Orban in Hungary, Erdogan, or Modi, or even Donald Trump? Yes, there are so many similarities with populist leaders. But the main difference, I would say, are the fact that he does not have a political party or mm. uh, a tool that he can use to mobilize the masses. He is an outsider, a political outsider, as you said, but he also belonged to the established elite somehow. He went to the same elitist high school as almost all Tunisian presidents. So he has a foot outside and a foot inside the system. And he's trying to find the right balance. And I think he's having difficulties to do that. Uh, populist leaders rely on some form of organization, like a political party. They manage to co-opt advisors to help them to get at least some things done. Said is not doing that. Mm -hmm. And he is having serious issues recruiting. We've seen him, for example appointing governors who've been unemployed for 20 years. Um, and I don't think he has the minimum level of pragmatism that populist state leaders like Trump had. And I think that's his major weakness. Well, that's really interesting. I mean, I think we also need to put this in the context of the Arab Spring. Um, and as, as I mentioned, Tunisia has the reputation as the Arab Spring's only success story. While all the other revolutions ended in civil war or military counter-revolution, Tunisia has resulted in parliamentary democracy. Now, Middle Easterners are so often told that dictatorship is their only option for stability. But Tunisia was proof, maybe you're giving some hope that it still is, that another way was possible. Um, but I think for a lot of people in the wider region, this this new constitution being passed into law will have come as quite a blow. Uh, yes, I think that um, this new constitution has an impact on the perception of democracy in the region. But this perception is mostly shaped by the authoritarian regimes in the region. If we, for example, see how Egyptian media or Saudi media talk about Qais Sa'id and usually draw a really unrealistic description of the reality. They don't say, for example, that there was a wide boycott. They tend to emphasize that the boycott came only from the Muslim Brotherhood uh, type of political party. Uh, they don't emphasize that only 20-something percent of the voting body did participate. And they claim that Tunisians really uh, were really fed up with democracy, and they don't want democracy. And the only experience that we had showed us that democracy is not the right form of government um, and uh, that we should not try to move toward democracy in the future. Well, when we look at serious studies of attitude toward democratic values, such as freedom of expression, freedom of organization, individual liberties. Um, and here I want to point to Nate Grubman's excellent work where he went and asked people, designed an experiment to see if Tunisians... Um, subscribe to the democratic values and norms, uh, he found that yes, but maybe if you ask them about democracy, the brand democracy maybe is not catchy anymore, 
um, for many Tunisians, but they still have that attachment. So that's why every time Saeed makes a move that reminds us of what Ben Ali used to do, uh, we still see a negative reaction from most Tunisians and from the media. So I, I, I think the authoritarian regimes in the region are mostly capitalizing on what Saeed did, reframing it to sell it in a different way to their population. So you don't think that this marks the end of the Arab Spring, it sounds? Well, I, I don't think of the Arab Spring as a never-ending period of time. Mm. Um, I think the Arab Spring was the 2011 uprisings, but then every single country went in a different direction. And the possibility to, to build something, to build a democracy is still there. The, the democratic ideal is still alive among um, the Arab population as uh, surveys are showing us. So yeah, so that, that's what I would say. The Arab Spring was over a long time ago, but the aspiration for democracy is still there. Well, thank you. I mean, as a final question then, the referendum has passed. Um, Syed seems to have a firm hold on power. Um, and I'd like to ask you what comes next. Is there a political solution? Does he stay in power? Does he get toppled like Ben Ali? What do you think comes next for Tunisia? So what's next is the legislative elections that we'll have by the end of the year. I think that since most autocrats, especially those who personalize power, tend to be removed not in a peaceful way and not by the opposition, I think if I want to speculate, although I'm, I'm usually skeptical of that, the internal threats, like meaning the threat coming from his inner circle, is more serious maybe than the threat that the opposition presents to him. So do you have hope? Yes, I do have hope. That's a great note to end on. Mohamed Mami, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. You can find Dhea on Twitter at M-E-D-D-H-I-A-H. This has been The Lead, the New Lines magazine podcast. This week's episode was produced by Joshua Martin and hosted by me, Lydia Wilson. For more like this, subscribe to The Lead on your favourite podcast app or visit our website, newlinesmag.com. Thank you all for joining us.